Prime members, you can listen to 60 Minutes ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the app today. The national sales event is on at your Toyota dealer, making now the perfect time to get a great deal on a dependable new SUV, like an adventure-ready RAV4. Available with all-wheel drive, your new RAV4 is built for performance on any terrain, from the road to the trails. And with plenty of passenger and cargo space, plus available tech like wireless charging, you and your entire crew can stay connected. Or check out a stylish and comfortable Highlander with three spacious rows of seating for up to eight passengers. And with available features like the panoramic moonroof, you can sit back, enjoy the wide open views with your whole family. Plus, both RAV4s and Highlanders are available in hybrid models, so no matter your style, you can drive efficiently and save on gas. So visit your local Toyota dealer and check out amazing national sales event details on RAVs, Highlanders, and more when you visit buyatoyota.com. Toyota, let's go places. This episode is brought to you in part by Audible, your go-to destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Whether you're looking for a hair-raising experience to enjoy while you're on the move or eager to dive into sinister and shocking tales, Audible has an exclusive collection of thrillers from best-selling authors that will keep you on the edge of your seat. Like The Guest List by Lucy Foley. Experience stories like never before, where every chilling detail is brought to life by captivating sound design. Plus, as an Audible member, choose one title a month to make yours forever. And now, new members can try Audible free for 30 days. Just visit audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. That's audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. Do you want to learn how to earn commissions of up to 20% by laundering millions of foreign dollars? Well, we can't help you with that. But among the many IT problems we solve, Barracuda's email security solutions keep email phishing attacks like this from entering your business network and any valuable data from leaking out. Reclaim your network like 150,000 other businesses have. To learn more about stopping email-borne threats, visit barracuda.com slash email. Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it. Tonight, an expanded edition of 60 Minutes presents Remembering Bob Simon. It's hard to imagine what CBS News would have been like over the past 47 years without Bob Simon. You don't think that socialism necessarily... For decades, his reports were the centerpiece of major broadcasts on world events from places like the Philippines. This could be as close as the 20th century has come to the storming of the Bastille. Bosnia. If it shuts down and pulls out... Sarajevo will become a slaughterhouse. And hate it. The only law in force is Darwin's law. It is the survival of the fittest. Just to name a few. Propelled by natural curiosity and wanderlust. Boy, oh boy. It was his love of adventure that drove him to explore exotic and often dangerous places. But these are real bullets. The problem is, no one can control the local village militias. And he always took us along with it. He's at the top of the food chain, here on the top of the world. Tonight, a look at the life and work of Bob Simon. This desolate road... The quintessential foreign correspondent. In the war which is already raging, not very far from here. 
That and three of our late colleagues' most memorable stories. Good evening. I'm Steve Croft. Welcome to 60 Minutes Presents. Tonight, we remember and celebrate the life and extraordinary career of our friend and colleague, Bob Simon. He spent 47 years covering the world for CBS News in 60 Minutes and survived dozens of wars and other calamities. He died 11 days ago in a New York City traffic accident not far from this studio. The irony would not have been lost on Bob. Irony was one of his favorite journalistic devices. He was a brilliant combination of sophistication and street smarts who liked to tell people he was just a Jewish kid from the Bronx. He didn't tell you that he was also Phi Beta Kappa and had been a Fulbright scholar or that he came to become television's quintessential foreign correspondent. We've traveled to remote places before, but never on an icebreaker. This is the natural habitat of the polar bear, these ice floes. There's nothing on this 130-square-mile peninsula other than monasteries and monks. Nothing. We landed right in the middle of a party. The guests of honor, us. What is going on? Oh, that's quite a welcome. Who are these people? These are the Papasena people. They seem to like you. And Bob Simon liked being there wherever there happened to be. But recently... He reported from 130 different countries, propelled by natural curiosity and wanderlust. Boy, oh boy. It was his love of adventure and the search for new experiences that drove him to explore exotic and often dangerous places. These are real bullets. The problem is, no one can control the local village militias. And he always took us along with him. Look at this earthquakes and tsunamis. This is my house. That's your house. Yeah. Wars and revolutions. The Battle of Bucharest seems to be almost over, but it is ending not with a whimper, but with a bang. I always thought, I don't even have to tell him what the story's about. If I tell him there's a story waiting for you, get on a plane, he'd be on the plane. Jeff Fager worked with Bob Simon for more than 30 years as a producer, executive producer of the CBS Evening News, and later executive producer of 60 Minutes. He always raised his hand, ready to go. His voicemail said, I'm not in and I may be gone for the next several months. <laughs> <laughs> he would rather be out covering a story anywhere in the world than be stuck in an office. It's hard to imagine what CBS News would have been like over the last 47 years without Bob Simon. You don't think that socialism necessarily evolves into another... For decades, his reports were the centerpiece of major broadcasts on world events, from places like the Philippines. This could be as close as the 20th century has come to the storming of the Bastille. Bosnia. If it shuts down and pulls out, Sarajevo will become a slaughterhouse. And Haiti. The only law in force is Darwin's law. It is the survival of the fittest. Just to name a few. He did it better than anybody. Leslie Stahl first met Bob in Jerusalem in the late 1970s. He was the most dashing foreign correspondent there was. He was so handsome. And his stories had such a uniqueness. He was special. He was always a serious, fabulous reporter with a distinctive voice. Childhood was canceled in Sarajevo this year. It is 
a casualty of war. The agreement this time was for a ceasefire. And here it is on the streets of Ramallah, a ceasefire. It gives new meaning to the phrase, a fragile truce. Bob Simon's voice was distinctive, not just in pitch and timber, but in the words he chose and the stories he composed and spoke in that rolling melodic prose that you could call Simonic pentameter. And it keeps getting worse. Bigger battles, more funerals, flags being turned into shrouds. The only peace, the peace of death. What do you think made him so great as a correspondent? Well, obviously, the first thing is his writing. He had a way of showing you a picture and then bringing you behind it with his brilliant, almost poetic writing. You can't really believe how bad it is here until you see it. It could be as close as you'll get to hell on earth with the smoke, the fumes, the heat. This is a scene Bob painted on a beach in Bangladesh where giant ships were being torn apart for salvage by men and boys earning a dollar a day. The men carry metal plates, each weighing more than a ton, from the shoreline to waiting trucks, walking in step like pallbearers or like members of a chain gang. Morley Safer, one of Simon's first mentors, says it was not just great writing, but great reporting, the ability to see something that no one else did. He had that ability to stand back from the story, take another look at it, and look at the small detail, which is often tells you much more than the simply recording the facts of the story. Simon had joined CBS News in 1967 as a rookie reporter on the assignment desk in New York. He was only 26, but he knew he wanted to be a foreign correspondent. Two years later, he got his chance in the London Bureau, where Morley Safer was his boss. Clearly, he was going to be, and was already, a damn good reporter. Turned out to be a pretty good hire. He was a terrific hire. Out of London, he covered the troubles in Northern Ireland. A machine gun opened fire from a high window in that apartment house. He also covered the troubles of the Beatles. The event is so momentous that historians may one day view it as a landmark in the decline of the British Empire. The Beatles are breaking up. Like every up-and-coming CBS newsman in the 1970s, Bob's next stop was Vietnam. His cameraman was Australian Norman Lloyd, and of all the stories they covered together, there was one neither would ever forget, a report from Route 1 near Quang Tri in 1972. This day, we pulled over and there was, you know, big firefight going on. Much of the day's fighting is left to the regional forces, the local people's militia. And it was very close combat and, and uh, a lot of guys were getting hit and, and um, this truck full of refugees, all we heard was the explosion. We ran over and it, it was full of women and children. The truckload of refugees had hit a landmine. Some are dead, some are not dead. By evening, government spokesmen are saying another grand victory has been won in Quang Tri province. The situation is once again stabilized. But there will be more fighting and more words. Words spoken by generals, journalists, politicians. But here on Route 1, it's difficult to imagine what those words can be. There's nothing left to say about this war. There's just nothing left to say. 
Bob Simon, CBS News, Group One. Simon left Vietnam a short time later, but it was only the beginning of his career as a war correspondent. He first arrived in the Middle East in 1973 to cover the Yom Kippur War. And over the next two decades, the Arab-Israeli conflict would be a story that he'd come to know as well as any foreign correspondent of his generation. And El Al steps are being wheeled up to a plane bearing the words, the Arab Republic of Egypt. Will miracles never cease? He was there when Israel made its historic peace with Egypt, and he did such a good job covering the Middle East. Good morning, Bob. CBS promoted him to cover the State Department. But Bob, his wife Francoise, and daughter Tanya were not overjoyed. Bob was happy to go anywhere except Washington, D.C. I hated it. I hated every minute of it. And, uh, I mean, I didn't go into this business to sit in a small cubicle which is what it was, and to be manipulated by politicians and government officials. After about a year on the job, he'd had enough. So on a rare trip with Secretary of State Alexander Haig, Simon decided to reassign himself. When the Falklands War began in 82, Alexander Haig, who was then Secretary of State, went down to try to mediate between the British and the Argentinians. He failed, and then... He took his plane back to Washington with a press plane, and I deliberately missed the pl a press plane. So I stayed there for the whole war. He needed to be out in the world. He needed to be out reporting and, and adventure. He would find it in Israel, where he had been reassigned by the time the first Palestinian uprising broke out in 1987, the beginning of another turbulent tenure. By then, Simon knew everyone of any consequence there, both Palestinian and Israeli, and he wasn't afraid to be tough on the Israeli government. Young rock-throwing Arabs were chased up a steep and rugged hill by Israeli soldiers who eventually caught two of them. Much is done in the Middle East in what passes for the heat of passion. This seemed cold, deliberate, methodical. It went on for 40 minutes. He reported from every country in the region, and his status only grew following the first Gulf War, when he and three of his CBS colleagues were captured by Saddam Hussein's troops after giving his American minders the slip and wandering into Iraqi territory. There was a period of a couple of weeks when he was missing in action. And well, I remember, really, CBS News was mobilized to try and find somebody who could find out if they were alive. Freedom at last for an American news team held by Iraq. Bob Simon, Peter Bluff, Roberto Alvarez, and Juan Caldera were finally set free in Baghdad. Bob rejoined his family after 40 days in an Iraqi cell. And a day later, he and his fellow CBS captives sat down with 60 Minutes correspondent Ed Bradley to describe the ordeal. We were blindfolded which made it all the more frightening. They beat us with, with canes, with sticks, on the legs, on the head. Just changed you? Yeah. How? I don't know. Too early to tell. When 60 Minutes came calling in 1998, the new job offered Bob the opportunity and the freedom to pursue his curiosities like never before. Any kind of a story he couldn't do? He could do any kind of story. His range was so great, it almost didn't matter what he was covering. He loved opera. We all know 
He loved classical music. The Metropolitan Opera was his favorite place on earth. Tonight we're going to take you backstage at the Met and show it to you in a way you've never seen it before. La -da, la -da, la -da. So he did a lot of opera, he did a lot of symphony stories, conductors. <laughs> it was his passion and it came through with his pieces. There's something about Gustavo that is primal, something that makes people describe him as a conducting animal. <laughs> he coaxes his musicians. He inspires them. Stop. He amuses them. From the big symphony halls to a warehouse in the Congo, Bob found joy in music. It's called the Ode to Joy, the last movement of Beethoven's last symphony. It has been played with more expertise before, but with more joy, hard to imagine. So what made Bob Bob? Four of his producers, Perry Radliff, Joel Bernstein, Dragan Mihaljevic, and Michael Gavshon, traveled with him far and wide and were like members of his family. He would ask questions that sometimes seemed off kilter a little bit, uh, that it was often only a question that Bob would think to ask that produced extraordinary mm. re responses. He could make you laugh. He could make you cry. He could make you think. I mean, there are not that many correspondents out there that could do that. There was no place he wasn't prepared to go, regardless of the story. I right. mean, if there was somewhere to go, he would go. He just wanted to go. He just wanted to go. Bob never complained about spending time in places like Mount Athos. It's about as beautiful as it gets. Bob used to go to monasteries on his own. He loved the tranquility. You stay in the silence just by walking in. He found comfort in the solitude and the quiet. He could just be on his own. The monks wouldn't bother him. I mean, he couldn't believe that he was actually there. There is no place on earth closer to heaven than Mount Athos. You know, everybody thinks Bob was a great writer, and he, and he was a great writer, but he was also a terrific interviewer. The big serpent was Saddam Hussein, and the Americans are the small serpent? It is the opposite, my friend. We met Muqtada el-Sadr in his small mosque in Najaf and conducted the only interview he's granted to a Western TV news organization. The Americans are the big serpent. The Americans got rid of your enemy. Saddam Hussein isn't the enemy of your enemy, your friend. Just because we're rid of Saddam and the evil Ba'athists doesn't mean the occupation is a good thing. Our salvation from Saddam was only with the grace of God. If getting rid of Saddam was a favor of God, why was it that God waited until the Americans came in to do the job? All praises to Allah. He works in mysterious ways. What did Bob bring to the story? He'd always bring an enthusiasm and a curiosity, a natural curiosity. Um, and you could get him to do just about anything. Today is Intel. We went to an Intel factory and he gets in a clean suit in the clean room that they had there. It's supposed to have curative powers. You could put him in an oil bath in Baku, Azerbaijan. 
You could uh, get them on a vertical treadmill to test out gravity, what it would be like if you were walking on the moon. It was at a 90-degree angle. We should sign you up for the astronaut corps. <laughs> I'd sign. Were there any stories that Bob didn't know anything about? There were a number of stories that he knew nothing about, but that really did not prevent him from being extremely enthusiastic about them. We did a story about the new Bobby Fischer, the world champion chess player, Magnus Carlsen. Bob didn't know the moves of each piece on the board, and yet he found a way of telling the story coherently and brilliantly. You were intimidated by playing the world champion when you were already 13 years old? Yeah, go figure. <laughs> what are some of your favorite stories? I think my favorite, if I had to pick one, was The Lost Boys. Once a week, the Lost Boys saw their destiny on a bulletin board, the staples of life. On this day, 90 learned they'd be going to America. The story documented the epic survival of thousands of Sudanese boys who had escaped war and walked a thousand miles across East Africa to a refugee camp in Kenya. In 2000, the United States decided to bring them to this country. Where are you going? This uh, is Kansas City. Kansas City? Yeah. Do you know where it is? I don't know. Right in the middle. It was rich. It had everything that Bob does well. It had adventure. It had real human drama. They had four days to pack their luggage. They took little, left less behind. And boy, did he write that beautifully. Bob loved underdogs, and the Lost Boys of Sudan were the ultimate underdogs. Once the Lost Boys made it to America and a completely new world... In America, we call him Santa Claus. Okay, Santa Claus. Bob and producer Dragan Mihaljevic continued to update the story over a 12-year period. Congratulations, you're a United States citizen. Thank you. And they loved seeing Bob, you know, every two or three years. Hey, Bob Simon! Hey, Bob Simon! <laughs> How you doing? You know, he became a real celebrity amongst the Lost Boys. Hey! How you doing, buddy? Oh, oh. oh, oh fantastic! Man. Look at that! He did a lot of animal stories there for a while. <laughs> he did. He accused me of making him our wildlife correspondent. And it's true, I did. He did them so well. We headed towards an unspoiled remote area called the Pantanal. We had to cross more than 125 rustic wooden bridges over dried up ponds and lakes, home to piranhas and caimans, cousins to the crocodile. It was good to be in a car. This is a rare sight. I've never caught them in the water. I've never gotten it in the water before. And I was a young one. Young didn't always mean small. They may be little, they may be orphans, but trust me, yeah. they're not as little as they look. <laughs> in fact, I feel like I'm in an elephant sandwich. Why was he so fond of animals? An animal is never duplicitous. An animal will never get involved in gratuitous cruelty. It's very refreshing to go see them after you've spent a lot of time interviewing politicians. These elephants are playing sort of amateur wrestling for pachyderms. Nobody gets hurt. Kids fall and get up the way kids do. Do you think you're going to hit to my forehand or my backhand? Bob was a bit of a kid himself, whether at play with tennis star Novak Djokovic. Hey! I never... <laughs> Are you kidding me? My God, what a sight. 
or at 16,000 feet in Chile, where a giant radio telescope peering into deepest space discovered something that intrigued Bob. We found a simple sugar called glycolaldehyde. Excuse me, I can't resist. There's sugar out there? Yes, there's sugar out there, there's alcohol. This is very good news. Yes, indeed. <laughs> oh, mama. <laughs> the most fun Bob may have ever had on a story was with the Italian actor Roberto Benigni. I jumped on him. <laughs> you jumped on the Pope? Yeah. And Who explained in jumbled English how he greeted Pope John Paul. And I kissed him here and here and here. Everywhere I kissed him. It was one of Bob's favorite moments in his career. And I called him Dad. <laughs> He saw the enthusiasm of this actor who couldn't contain himself with his excitement. Dad, finally found you again! But it wasn't always laughter. Bob had his dark periods. He suffered from occasional bouts with depression. Eventually, he always snapped out of it. He was overjoyed by the birth of his first grandchild. His office walls were covered with pictures of Jack, and Bob sent him letters on his Blackberry, even though Jack wasn't old enough to read them. Every day on the road, wherever we were in the world, he would write a letter to Jack. He once told me that one of the reasons he was just so insanely in love with his grandchild was because he had finally met a person who didn't lie. <laughs> Sweet. Bob had been in a good place recently. He was working with his daughter, Tanya, a talented producer at 60 Minutes, and the two of them had just finished a story that aired last week about a treatment for Ebola. Of all the viruses you have in here is... Ebola, number one, is it the most dangerous? Yeah, it, it is one of the most aggressive, if not the most aggressive. Then he walked out the door one night and never came back. We have some sad news tonight from within our CBS News family. Our 60 Minutes colleague, Bob Simon, was killed this evening. It was a car accident in New York City. I couldn't believe it. And to go this way is unthinkable. I mean, you couldn't write it in a novel. His last day was one of his happiest. He'd shown us a piece that went incredibly well. It was what we call around 60 Minutes, a great screening. I told him we were going to have it on Sunday night. And he left that screening room and walked around, told everybody who would listen that his story had bumped another one. <laughs> he was really proud of that. And uh, it was a story he'd done with his daughter. So I think that just made him feel extra good about it. Bob had been everywhere, done everything, and had the talent and experience to translate what he saw for millions of people. That's not hyperbole. It's why he had 27 Emmys. He'll be missed. How does this impact the broadcast, Bob's death? It's, it's a really big hole. You know, Bob Simon was so good at what he did. Uh, we're still all in a bit of shock about it. I think it really does have an impact on 60 Minutes because you can fill his job but you can't replace Bob Simon. We continue tonight with three of Bob Simon's most memorable stories. It wasn't an easy choice to pick only three, given the hundreds of stories he did and the range of subjects he took on. But we begin with Bob's distinguished work as a war correspondent. He combined bravery an eye for the telling detail, and at times a righteous indignation at war's folly and its consequences. In 1999, as the fighting in the former Yugoslavia entered a new phase in Kosovo, 
Bob looked at what happened in Srebrenica, the slaughter by Serb troops of more than 8,000 Muslim civilians in that Bosnian town. It was the Serbs who did the killing, but the shame of Srebrenica also fell on a group of soldiers from another country, the Dutch sent to the town as UN peacekeepers, the Dutch who had such high ideals when they volunteered for the most dangerous job in Bosnia, only to see those ideals shattered by what they saw, what they did, and what they didn't do. Here's how Bob reported that story. It took only days after the massacre in 1995 for U.S. spy planes to photograph freshly plowed fields near Srebrenica, and it wasn't the season for planting. The truth on the ground was even more gruesome. A thin veil of earth concealed the biggest mass graves dug in Europe since World War II. Work was still continuing last fall, three and a half years after the massacre, and still more graves will be uncovered next spring. Graves that tell the story of a well-planned job carried out systematically and methodically, a job of genocide. If you want a sense of the enormity of what happened in Srebrenica, there's no better place to come than here. Two old mining tunnels dug into the Bosnian hills. This is where the bodies are stored, more than 1,800 of them. A small fraction of the missing, but more than any morgue on earth could handle. None of these bodies have been identified, so they can't be buried. In Bosnia, even the dead can't go home. The bodies are still coming in, evidence of a colossal war crime. The Dutch troops, whose mandate was to prevent the massacre, have been home for three years, and many are now speaking out. We came there to help. We came there to protect them. We came there with a will to do as much as we could do, but we failed. Warrant officer Wim Dykema belonged to that Dutch battalion, which was sent to Srebrenica to stop an attack on the town. Uh, when, when the war started and the shelling started, we uh, had some of those people in our bunkers, and they cried and they begged us, please help us. When the attack began, the Dutch tried to help. They called in airstrikes. Dykema filmed the Dutch hiding in the safety of their bunker while two NATO planes destroyed one Serb tank. That's when Serb General Ratko Mladic threatened to kill the UN peacekeepers if the airstrikes continued. That's when the airstrikes stopped, and the defense of Srebrenica was effectively over. We were beaten in, in, in every way. Major Rob Franken, the Dutch second-in-command, was in charge of the troops on the ground. We got ordered to defend Srebrenica from the UN in, in, in Sarajevo with all means. And we got the uh, order not to bring body bags back to Holland. So security of our own personnel was, uh, had priority. Now, one minute. You're getting orders not to bring body bags back to Holland. That's correct. But at the same time... We had to defend the city. If you would call it the definition of nonsense, I could agree with that. The Serbs took the town quickly. Mladic walked the streets congratulating his men, but he wasn't ready to celebrate. He wanted more than the town. He wanted the Muslims, and he was in a hurry. 
On to Portachari, he said. Don't stop. Portachari was a suburb of Srebrenica, an industrial area, site of the main Dutch base, which is now filled up with thousands of Muslims desperate to keep the Dutch peacekeepers between them and the advancing Serbs. You cannot describe it. You have to be there, you have to smell it, you have to hear it. Dr. Gert Kramer, a Dutch colonel, was busy treating the wounded. You, you cannot describe a situation where uh, 5,000 people are in a, a factory building and um, when they have to stay there for, for more than a few hours, what the smell is and the sound of, of crying children, weeping mothers. It's, it's unbelievable. You never forget this. Hassan Nuhanovic will never forget either. He was working as a translator for the UN when Srebrenica fell. When the Serbs attacked the town, Hassan headed for the Dutch compound. He was relieved to find his mother, father and brother safely inside. Hassan had convinced his family the Dutch would protect them. He'd been most worried about his 20-year-old brother. During the Bosnian War, not many men of military age captured by the Serbs had survived. At that moment, I thought we are all safe. Finally, you know, the episode of three and a half years of suffering in Srebrenica was over. We were going to maybe hang around in Potocari for a couple of days. UN is going to do something and save all the people who suffered and, you know, take them to a safe place. But there was no safe place for Srebrenica's Muslim men. General Mladic was on the scene to make sure of that. Serb soldiers closed in on the UN compound. 5,000 terrified refugees had been let in the gates. More than 20,000 others were stranded outside with only the Dutch peacekeepers between them and the Serbs. The Dutch made a brief attempt to keep the Serb troops away from the Muslim refugees, but they were outnumbered and outgunned. The Dutch had 160 combat troops facing thousands of Serbs. This young Dutch lieutenant tries to stop Mladic. Mladic says, I'm in charge here. I don't care about your commander. Then Mladic assures the refugees they will be taken to safety. And in fact, the women and children were bussed across the front line and dumped in safe territory. The men, thousands of them, were bussed to neighboring Serb villages, lined up and shot. Could the Dutch have resisted or at least defended the refugees until help arrived? If we would have started uh, firing, there would be a massacre. I was absolutely convinced of that. A massacre of? And the, of, of those refugees. One thing all parties agree on is that the Dutch cooperated with the Serbs in making sure the evacuation ran smoothly. In fact, they strung up a tape to create a path for the refugees to follow. The tape ended here at what was the gate. That's where the Serbs took over and separated the men from the women and the children. You know, they just planned everything to efficiently empty the camp. You know, just uh, tell the people to walk like cattle, you know, towards the gate. As the Muslims were being taken away, a Serb cameraman asked Colonel Kramer what was happening. What's going on today here? You know what's going on. I just came here. You know what's going on. Hey, yeah, by that time everybody understood that it was well organized, that it was f planned in advance, that the trucks arrived, 
And uh, the only thing we could do at that time was to help the people get in, into the trucks on, in a decent way. And the men were separated from the women. They were brought to the Serbs. And there, where the buses went and the Serbs were, they were separated. The women and the elderly went to the right and the men went to the left. Images of Auschwitz. I've seen pictures and and I, I realized what, while I was standing there that I saw two pictures at the same time. There was a, a man with a baby and he had to give that baby away to us because the Serb soldier didn't allow him to travel on with the baby. So Sophie's Choice and, and, and um, well, another movie passed, passed uh, before my eyes. Uh, Schindler's List. Schindler's List at the same time, yes. Hidden from the Serbs, Wim Dykemer continued filming. At the time, he didn't fully realize he was documenting the first stages of genocide. I realized that I have been very, very naive. When Mladic said, I guarantee their safety, that I believed him. If for me, it's unbelievable now, at this moment. But that time, perhaps I wanted to believe him. I don't know. But when you saw the teenage boys and the old men being taken out of the compound, it didn't occur to you that the Serbs were going to slaughter them. Of course it occurred to me. But that I asked myself over and over again, what could we have done? Initially, the Dutch tried to do something. Major Franken sent a few troops to accompany the first busloads of male refugees. But the Serbs took away their jeeps, their weapons, even their uniforms. My personnel was stripped and came back to the enclave in their underwear, etc., etc. So the men who left in their buses, the men who were taken away by the Serbs, you weren't allowed to accompany them? Yeah, we tried, but, but, but actually we didn't. We, we couldn't because we Your were soldiers stopped. who tried to accompany them were stopped and yes. humiliated? Yes, it's correct. As the compound emptied out, Hassan Nuhanovic began to panic. Remember, he was a UN employee, he could stay. But the Dutch insisted that his brother be handed over to the Serbs. Hassan knew that if his brother went, his mother and father would go too. He made a final plea to Major Franken. One last time I asked him if I could keep my brother with me in, inside the camp because he said that the interpreters could stay but he didn't, didn't allow it to me, so my brother and mother and father walked out the camp. And you were standing right here? Just, yeah, right here. I was, I was crying all the time. And uh, <clears throat> I told <clears throat> my brother and my family that I was going to walk outside together with them. But I walked like 10, 15 meters, and they all turned around and said that, you know, I had to stay. Sophie's choice, Hassan's choice. If you could talk to Hassan today, what would you say to him? 
but I would try to inform him. And anyway, give him, uh, try to give him the, the, the uh, conviction that, that we, as far as, we, as I see, we did what we could. And but then you have to make choices, and there are choices who are, uh, who are hard. Major Franken completed his job by, you know, expelling the last refugees from the camp. So he could start with the uh, evacuation plan for himself and Dutch battalion. You think that's all they were really interested in, the Dutch was taking care of themselves? Nothing else. Just two hours before my family was kicked out, a man was shot at the back of his head in front of the Dutch soldiers, very near the gate. Some of the refugees under your, quote, protection, unquote, mm. were getting killed within 100 meters of where you were. Yes. And you were trying to keep that secret from the mass of Muslim men inside the base. Yes. We wouldn't know what, how they would react. So your prime objective at that point was to avoid panic inside That's the camp. That's correct. So in a sense, you achieved your objective. There, you avoided panic. You maintained yes. a certain amount of control. The evacuation was conducted in a relatively orderly fashion. Yes, as far as I know. And all the men are dead. I don't know whether all those men are dead, but the mass of them are dead is correct. Hassan's family and more than 8,000 other Muslims from Srebrenica have never been seen again. General Mladic has been indicted for war crimes, and the Dutch are home in Holland, where Srebrenica is the name of a nightmare. Was the Dutch battalion completely humiliated in I felt humiliated, that may be, that's clear, because I was, as a soldier, I was not uh, able to uh, effectively protect those people. You know, it's, it's, it, it was just a nightmare, and it still is a nightmare. It's not finished yet, because I still don't know what happened. Do you think you'll ever find out? Well, I'll do my best to find out what exactly happened. I want to know every detail. What happened to my family from the moment they walked out of this camp? to the moment maybe they were killed or put in some prison or something. I want to know every detail. Without that, I'm, going, I'm not going to have any rest for the rest of my life. America was built by people with a few dollars and a dream. And while many don't know it, there's one path to success that still only requires a dream and about $10. That's right. If your dream is to start or grow your business, something as simple as the right business card could make all the difference. And today at Vistaprint.com, you can get 500 full-color business cards for only $9.99. Only $9.99. Just go to Vistaprint.com and enter promo code 7878 at checkout. That's Vistaprint.com, promo code 7878. Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it. Bob Simon was always ready for an adventure, a chance to travel somewhere he'd never seen and tell us all about it. He had a gift for finding the surprising, even the magical, in the most unexpected places. In the wake of the 2004 Asian tsunami that killed some 280,000 from Indonesia to India, Bob found a story of survival. He encountered members of a remarkable and ancient culture who lived precisely where the tsunami hit hardest, but who suffered no casualties at all. They are the Sea Gypsies of the Andaman Sea, or as they call themselves, the Mokan. They've lived for hundreds of years on the islands off the coast of Thailand and Burma. 
They are, of all the peoples of the world, among the least touched by modern civilization. And as Bob reported, they miraculously survived the tsunami because they knew it was coming. It's their intimacy with the sea that saved them. They're born on the sea, live on the sea, die on the sea. They know its moods and motion better than any marine biologist. They're nomads, constantly moving from island to island, living more than six months a year on their boats. At low tide, they collect sea cucumbers and catch eels. At high tide, they dive for shellfish. And they've been living this way for so many generations, they've become virtually amphibious. Kids learn to swim before they can walk. Underwater, they can see twice as clearly as the rest of us. And by lowering their heart rate, can stay underwater twice as long. They are truly sea urchins. This old man decided he wanted to fish for breakfast. It took him one toss of his spear. It was a puffer fish. If it's not cut properly, it can kill you. The mokum cut it properly. We found this mokum village on an island two hours by speedboat from the coast of Thailand. It had become something of an exotic tourist mecca before the tsunami. A Bangkok movie star and amateur photographer named Own was here on December 26th, taking pictures of Mokan village life when someone noticed the sea receding into the distance. How far? Like, um, you see the blue one, the blue water? Yes, and wow. You, see the green water? you didn't see any water. No kidding. Yes, you could walk far. way out there. Yes. Own continued taking pictures. They show the Mokan on the beach... Crying. Did you have any idea why they were crying? I feel like they know what bad will happen, but I don't know how much bad. And Owen's pictures show the Mokan fleeing towards higher ground long before the first wave struck. The first water has come like over here. The water got that high? Yes. And that was just the first wave. The worst was yet to come as the Mocha knew because of signs from the sea. It wasn't only the sea that was acting strangely, it was the animals too. On the mainland, elephants started stampeding towards higher ground. Off Thailand's coast, divers noticed dozens of dolphins swimming for deeper water. And on these islands, the cicadas, which are usually so loud, suddenly went silent. And the silence was heard by Saleh Kalatale, that skilled spear fisherman who was on a different part of the island. He ran around warning everyone. When you told people in the village who said something was wrong, did they believe you? Mm. The young people called me a liar. I said we've told the story of the waves since the old times, but none of the kids believed me. I grabbed my daughter by the hand and said, Child, get out of here or you'll die. She said, You're a liar, father. You're drunk. I hadn't had a drop to drink. Saleh brought the skeptics to the water's edge where they too saw the signs. Eventually, everyone, the Mokan and the tourists, climbed to higher ground and were saved. But the village itself, there's nothing left. Why do you think the tsunami happened? 
The wave is created by the spirit of the sea. The big wave had not eaten anyone for a long time, and it wanted to taste them again. Do you think that they consider themselves very unlucky because their village was destroyed or lucky because they survived? Um, I think they just take it as a matter of fact. Dr. Nariman Hinshiranan is an anthropologist, one of the very few who speaks the Mokan language. Tell me, what is it in your mind that permitted the Mokan to know that the tsunami was coming? And water receded very fast, and one wave, one small wave came. So they recognized that this is not ordinary. And then they, they have this kind of legend that passed uh, from generations to generations, about seven waves. It's a legend recited around campfires bearing an astonishing resemblance to what actually happened on December 26th. They call it the laboon, the wave that eats people. And it's brought on by the angry spirits of the ancestors. Before it comes, the sea recedes. Then the waters flood the earth, destroy it, and make it clean again. So basically this, the, the tsunami myth is that the world is reborn after it is covered with water. Yes. So we're back to the biblical flood. Yes. French anthropologist Jacques Ivanov is the world's foremost authority on the Mokan and has been living with them on and off for more than 20 years. Hello. Come on board. We joined him on a voyage of discovery. He was going to the Mokan Islands off the coast of Burma, a military dictatorship closed to the outside world. There had been no news of what had happened to these Mokan since the tsunami. We knew that the Mokan survived the tsunami, the Mokan in Thailand survived. We really don't know for sure what happened in Burma, do we? Nobody can know because no information get out of Burma. Everybody has to say nothing happened. That means the tsunami stopped at the border, and uh, that's it, finish, end of the story. Ivanov's boat, a converted cargo ship called the Moken Queen, could have sailed right off the pages of Joseph Conrad. The captain was called Long Ear. The crew, all Burmese. The deck shrouded in nets to protect us from malarial mosquitoes. All sense of time of the 21st century seemed to evaporate into the tropical night air as we probed further and further into what often seemed to be the heart of darkness. It's really difficult to get more remote than this, isn't it? That's the best part of the story. You are outside of uh, everywhere. You are nowhere, in fact. When we got to shore, we talked to a family of Moken living on their boat on the beach. But during the tsunami, they'd also been at sea. We started by introducing ourselves. Kunyeni. My name is Bob. 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 We'd come here to find out whether or not these people had survived the tsunami. We wound up captivated by their culture. We've never seen anything like it. How, how old is this gentleman? You don't know. Why? I mean, every, every one we ask how old they are, the answer is the same. They don't know. How do you explain that? Time is uh, it's not the same uh, concept as we have. You can say, for instance, when, when it's a, not, not exist in Moken language. 
When doesn't exist. No. The word, the I, question when doesn't no. exist. And Ivanov says when is not the only word missing from the Mokan language. Want. What? Yes, that's a, you use it very often. Take, take that out of your language and you see how often you use I want this, I want that. There's no word for want. No, there is a word for take. You take something, you give or you take. You don't want. The fact is, the Mokan want very little. What they don't want is to accumulate anything. Baggage is not good for a nomadic people. Ties you down. They have no notion and no desire for wealth. Remember Sally, the spear fisherman? That was breakfast. He'll think about lunch later on. Okay, there's no word for when, there's no word for want, anything else that we'd be? No goodbye, no hello. No goodbye or hello. Uh-huh. Right. Uh, that's, a, that's quite difficult, you know, after, imagine after one year you live with them and then you, you, you go, you go. That's it, finish. No greetings. While we were on a time Oaken Island, a flotilla from Burma dropped by. They didn't seem terribly excited by this. Visits from relatives, and they're all relatives, happen all the time. And since there's no notion of time, it doesn't matter if the last visit was a week ago or five years ago. There's just a constant commingling. And in the wake of the tsunami, they're all busy now, rebuilding their boats and their lives. And what I saw since the tsunami is, yes, they take this opportunity, you know, to make the, the, the strong group stronger, for instance. No. You, you are uh, sitting on this uh, boat. <laughs> Is it okay with him? <laughs> no problem, but he... But he's just, he thought he should point it out or he wanted to use the boat? No, no, he wants to work a little bit on the boat, but... Uh, but it's, he doesn't mind waiting? Of course not. You sure it's not a problem? I'm sure. <laughs> but the Mokan do have problems. The Burmese have turned some of their islands into military bases. The Thais are having them make trinkets for tourists, a trend which could ultimately threaten their way of life far more than any number of tsunamis. But the Mokan don't seem terribly worried by all this. Perhaps that's because worry is just one more of those words which doesn't exist in their language. Bob Simon's great passion, apart from his family and good writing, was music. He delighted particularly in opera, but a symphony in Kinshasa, a young conductor in Caracas, or a rap star from Brooklyn were all worthy of Bob's attention, and, in his judgment, ours. In 2013, he led us to sweet sounds rising above foul odors, to a town built on a garbage dump on the outskirts of Asuncion the capital of the tiny, impoverished South American country of Paraguay. It's called Catiura, and Bob went there not because of the poverty or the filth, but because of the incredible imagination and ingenuity of the people who live there. This story is testament to Bob's belief that ultimately music will triumph everywhere and anywhere. Garbage is the only crop in Catiota, and the harvest lasts 12 months a year. It is Catiota's curse, its livelihood, 
and the only reason people live here. It provides hundreds of jobs to peasant farmers who are kicked off their plots by large landowners. They are the trash pickers. It is their profession. They sift through the stench 24 hours a day, scrounging for anything they can sell. Ten cents for a pound of plastic, five cents for a pound of cardboard. You'll be amazed at what else people are doing here with this trash. Just look and listen. This is the recycled orchestra of Katyuda. The violins are fashioned from oven trays. The cellos from oil barrels. Even the strings are recycled. The saxophones and trumpets are made from old drain pipes. The keys warns coins and bottle caps. The strumskin used to be an x-ray plate. The guitar from dessert tins. The idea came from environmental technician Fabio Chavez. When he came to Catiura and saw the kids working and playing on this miserable hill, he came up with the idea of starting a music school to lift the kids' lives out of the trash. From the start, Fabio realized that even if he could raise the money, new instruments were out of the question. A factory-made violin would cost more than a house here and would almost certainly get stolen. But these fiddles aren't worth a dime. They are the handiwork of trash worker and carpenter Don Cola Gomez. Three days a week, he goes to the dump to find the raw materials. Then in his tiny workshop at the edge of the dump, he goes to work. Fabio first asked him to make a violin, but this Stradivarius of South America had never seen one or heard one. Do you realize how unusual it is? Yes, Yes, that's the way it is. When you need something, you need to do whatever it takes to survive. He was soon making three violins a week, then cellos, and finally guitars, drums, and double basses, all out of trash. Take a look and listen to what Cola has created. 15-year-old Ada Rios has been playing for three years now. Today, she is the orchestra's first violinist. The first time you went and saw the orchestra and you say all these instruments with all these different colors, were you surprised when you learned that they were made from trash? Yes, I was very surprised because I had thought that trash was useless. But thanks to the orchestra, I now realize that there are so many different things that can be done with this stuff. Couture didn't exist before Paraguay's capital, Asuncion, started dumping its trash here. The town grew up around the garbage and became one of the poorest places in South America. 2,500 families live here now. There's hardly any electricity or plumbing. The drinking water is contaminated. Many of the children move from broken homes to crime and drugs. But Ada and her younger sister, Noelia, who plays the cello, say that music has become their salvation. 
the centerpiece of their lives. When I play the violin, I feel like I am somewhere else. I imagine that I'm alone in my own world and forget about everything else around me and feel transported to a beautiful place. Can you describe that beautiful place? Yes, I'm transported to a place that is completely different to where I am now. It has clear skies, open fields, and I see lots of green. It's clean with no trash. There is no contamination where we live. It's just me alone playing my violin. Every Saturday, this drab schoolyard is transformed into a multicolored oasis of music. The kids flock here to learn and to play. Catayuda is a long way from Juilliard, but these music students are just as dedicated as those prodigies in New York. don't get rained on like the kids here. Paraguay is in the tropics, and you're reminded of that all the time. But the band plays on. The veterans, 15-year-olds, are teaching the novices. Many are barely big enough to hold a violin. The music can't compete with the downpour, but there is refuge in a classroom. Fabio Chavez says that music teaches the kids respect and responsibility, not common commodities in the gang-ridden streets of Catayura. These values are completely different to those of gangs. If these kids love being part of the orchestra, they're absolutely going to hate being part of a gang. For the first time, the children are getting out of Ketiura, performing around the country. And to Chavez, the Pied Piper of Paraguay, that's the most important thing. They're being seen, they're being heard. These are children that were hidden. Nobody even knew they existed. We have put them on a stage. And now everybody looks at them and everybody knows they exist. That's mainly because of a documentary that's being made about the orchestra called Land Philharmonic. Last November, the producers put their trailer up on YouTube. It went viral. The orchestra began getting bookings worldwide. It is such stuff as dreams are made on. And when you talk to the parents, you hear what you hear from poor people everywhere. They want their kids to have a better life than they've had. Jorge Rios is Ada and Noelia's father. If she becomes a professional musician, she'd probably be leaving town. How would you react to that? Yes, the truth is, if you ask that question to every parent here, 
they would say they would leave this place if they could. I, of course, would like her to have a better life than the one I've had. And if she leaves, I hope she takes me with her. What's hard to believe is that most of the parents and the people of Katayoda had never heard the children play. That was about to change. A concert was finally scheduled. There were banners in the streets. The local radio station was ready to broadcast. The church was transformed into a concert hall. The children wore their finest. This was, after all, opening night. It could have been New York. All the students were on stage for the finale. Some of the musicians were performing after just one rehearsal. Parents were proud, of course, but just listen to the girl's grandma, Miriam. I would say it's a blessing from God. People used to humiliate us and call us trash pickers. Today, they're more civilized. They call us the recyclers. So I feel that this is a reward from God, that our children who come from this place can play beautiful music in this way. Final note from the recycled orchestra of Katyura. Go on, send us your garbage. We'll send it back to you as music. I'm Lex Friedman. I run my own business, so I know from experience, hiring new employees can be tough. Posting your job in one place isn't enough to find quality candidates. If you want to find the perfect hire, you need to post your job on all the top job sites. And now you can. With ZipRecruiter.com, you can post your job to 50-plus job sites, including social networks like Facebook and Twitter, all with a single click. Find candidates in any industry nationwide. Just post once and watch your qualified candidates roll into ZipRecruiter's easy-to-use interface. And with ZipRecruiter's premium traffic boost, you can get up to three times more candidates. Quickly screen applicants, rate them, and hire the right person fast. Find out why ZipRecruiter has been used by over 200,000 businesses. Right now, our listeners can try ZipRecruiter for free. Plus, get 30% off your first traffic boost by going to ZipRecruiter.com deal. That's ZipRecruiter.com deal. One more time. To try it for free, go to ZipRecruiter.com deal. Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it. It wasn't long after word of Bob Simon's death that we began to get poignant letters from people who had been in some of Bob's favorite stories. We heard from all kinds, Israeli leaders, art forgers, nuns, snowboarders, baseball stars, even the Egyptian John Stewart. 
This from the communications director of FC Barcelona, the Spanish club best known for its soccer team, and the great Leo Messi. As you know, in late 2012, the club opened its doors for Mr. Simon and his team to produce a report for 60 Minutes. That very report will eternally live on as a true journalistic jewel, one of the most important and outstanding news pieces to have ever been dedicated to FC Barcelona. And then there was this from the conductor of the story Bob did about the Kimbangus Symphony Orchestra. His visit to Kinshasa remains unforgettable for us because the story, Joy in the Congo, shown in the United States, opened many doors for us outside of Africa. A trip to Los Angeles in 2013 and a tour to the United Kingdom in September 2014. I also became an honorary member of the Royal Philharmonic Society. Bob brought us joy, and we will never forget him. And finally this, a note with a subject line on the loss of our friend from Father Maximos about Bob's story on Mount Athos, one of the holiest places in Eastern Orthodox Christianity. Early this morning, I received the terrible news of Bob's death. I'm shocked and deeply saddened. I have sent word to the Holy Mountain, where I am sure prayers are being offered for him and his family, as they are here. I'm Leslie Stahl. We'll be back next week with a new edition of 60 Minutes. Good night. Hi, this is Jill Schlesinger, CBS News business analyst, certified financial planner, and host of the Money Watch podcast. This is the show where your money is not scary and it's not boring. It is a show that's all about you. It's your questions that make it possible for me to provide unconventional and entertaining insights on your money and maybe more importantly, on your life. I'm going to be your financial coach, someone who brings common sense and an insider's perspective on how to manage your money and your emotions. And I promise we are going to have a little bit of fun along the way. Have a question from retirement to career changes to college funding? Just send us an email at askjill at jillonmoney.com. Follow Money Watch wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen ad-free on the Amazon Music or Wondery app.